Give God some praise. Yeah. You can be seated this morning. I'm going to read Pastor's text for him. It's out of Solomon 5, 1 through 16. Songs of Solomon, excuse me. 5, 1 through 16. It's a little lengthy, so I'm going to let you set this morning. And this is what it says. I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my mare with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, ye drink abundantly, O beloved. I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up to open, and my beloved, and my hands dropped with myrrh, and my fingers with sweet-smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. My soul failed when he spake. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if ye find my beloved, that ye tell him that I am sick of love. What is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, what is thy beloved more than another beloved, that thou dost so charge us? My beloved is white and ruddy, with the chiefest among ten thousand. His head is as the most fine gold, his locks are bushy and black as a raven. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are so as a bed of spices as sweet flowers, his lips like lilies drip, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet. Ye, he is altogether lovely. This, my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Let us pray over the word this morning. Lord, we pray that we will be open to hear what you have to speak to us this morning. I pray for an anointing from our pastor as he preaches your word, that your spirit would speak through him this morning. Fill him with power, your power, O oh God. And prepare us once again for what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brother Zach. We're going to get right into the word of the Lord this morning in Song of Solomon chapter 5. You want to keep your Bibles open there and maybe chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 1 and chapter 7 and chapter... We're going to be all over the place here today. First of all, you have to realize that in the book of Song of Solomon is a variety of allegories and metaphors that God uses in order to communicate to us his people. These chapters are not like a novel or like a story plot where everything is in chronological order, nor are they an arranged set of events to where you can follow a set pattern here. This book kind of reminds me of the movies of Star Wars, where the first movie that you ever seen at all on Star Wars was actually the fourth one, and then there were other eight episodes that were intertwined, and you had to kind of try to piece them together. And this is how this book is. Each chapter of this book gives you insight on the next, and they intertwine with each other. For example, some of the things that happens in chapter five can only be understood when you read chapter three, and some of the things that happens in chapter three can only be understood when you read chapter five. Because chapter three gives a little bit of a story of what's going on. Chapter five adds to chapter three. Chapter three sets up for the plot for chapter five. And this is the way it is all throughout the book of the Song of Solomon. These allegories are actually woven together. So each chapter goes ahead of time or it falls back in time to reveal a new truth to what will be or what has already been done. So you gotta understand that when you read the book of Song of Solomon. You can't just read chapter one and he'd be dealing with one thing because chapter one is also gonna be, you're gonna see another part of it in chapter five and then chapter five is gonna make more sense in chapter one and it's just all the way like that throughout these, this book. The first thing that we see in chapter five verse one is his 
him giving us insight symbolically of an invitation of a future event that's going to happen to us as the church of Jesus Christ. These verses are symbolic of what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb where Christ and his bride is united and it's symbolic of the reception of that or the and the honeymoon of the bride and the bridegroom. Solomon chapter 5 verse 1 starts out. It says, I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, oh friends, drink. Yea, drink abundantly, ye beloved. This is actually a celebration. This is actually a party that has taken place. This is actually a reception night. Notice the three things that he calls his people within these passages of scripture. He calls them his sister, his spouse, and his beloved. Now, some people said that he had Arkansas in mind when he wrote that because it's the only place you can be a sister and spouse at the same time. Did you get that? Now, guys, those of you from Arkansas, Chuck said that. Those of you who like the humor, I said that, okay? Praise the name of the Lord. But the truth of the matter is, he calls us his sister, his spouse, and his beloved. Now, I don't have time to break down every one of these phrases because that's not my main message here today, but I will attempt to give you just a little bit of an overview so you can go home and study them for yourself. To be his sister, that terminology, it means that Jesus Christ is our elder brother who has received an inheritance for us. By law, it's the elder brother that receives the inheritance and all that is tied to that family receives the inheritance from the father. You and I receive an inheritance from the father. We receive receive eternal life because of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? There's a lot of preaching about eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ our Lord. To be his spouse, it means that we are his, that he is our bridegroom and we are his bride. And to be, of course, his beloved means that we are his chosen. And I'm thankful that I did not choose him, but he chose me. Amen? That makes me valuable. That makes me important. That I didn't have to try to somehow convince him that I'm worthy enough to receive him. He, did, he looked at me in my sin and loved me anyway. That's how much that God loves us. He chose us. Amen. He talks about how that he has gathered his myrrh and his spices. And these are the ingredients that make up the anointed. So this is talking about he is gathering the anointed. There is going to be a gathering of the anointed someday. Can you say amen? There is going to be a great catching away. There's going to be a gathering of the anointing of God. He said he has drunk his wine with his milk. This refers, of course, to salvation. Those who have received salvation. We know this by Isaiah the prophet of redemption who said in Isaiah 50, Five and one. He said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price and without money and, and without price. Here we see that the milk and the, the, that the wine and the milk is symbolic of salvation. The myrrh, the spices, and the balsam was the expensive spices that was given to the king by by uh, the king of uh, the given to King Solomon by the Queen of Sheba. And some of the spices that was given to King Solomon by Queen of Sheba was out of that area where she lived that they could only be found there and they were considered of the highest quality and some of the most expensive spices on planet earth. It is here he calls them friends. He says, oh friends, drink. Drink abundantly, oh ye beloved. He's calling them friends. This is in reference to the conversion of the heathen nations representing the Queen of Sheba and that, and that state. These heathen nations become his beloved. This is symbolic that the part that is going to be wrapped up in the marriage supper of the Lamb, there's going to be a bunch of us Gentiles there. Amen. When this was written, the Jews could not understand that. That he's actually calling Gentiles his beloved. You are the beloved of God. Can you say amen to that today? We are the apple of his eye. We're his precious, precious treasure. Those of us that are here today, I want you to know this is indication that you and I are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are God's chosen. We are God's beloved. Though we be Gentiles and not Jews. And they and we see that the we, the bride of Christ, are invited not only to drink, but to drink abundantly. Say abundantly. What did Jesus come to do? He came to give us life, to give us to us more abundantly. Here we see Christ wanting to give unlimited supply of refreshment to his people. He's wanting us to drink out of the wells of salvation. He lets us know as his people that there was unlimited supply of his grace, that we can drink abundantly, and there's overflow of blood 
blessing stored up for each and every one of us. According to Psalms 23, I want you to know, he will give until our cup runneth over. According to the book of Malachi 2 and 10, he says, prove me herewith. If I will not open the windows of heaven and give you a blessing more than you can even house or restore. He said, I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. Now, we're going to get into some stuff. Hang with me. This is an intimate remark, and it speaks of an intimate act. It speaks of relationship, affection, and devotion. Honey, throughout the scripture, speaks of the word of God. We see it all through scripture. I'll give you a few references. This is why that the psalmist said in Psalms 119, verse 103, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than the honey to my mouth. When John the Revelator was commanded by the angel of the Lord to take the little book and eat it, it says in Revelations 9 and 10, and I took the little book out of the angel's hand, I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So we see that the word of God is like sweet honey. As a matter of fact, our text said that his taste, uh, that when you taste and see that the Lord is good, it is like honey. It is his, his mouth is sweet is what the scripture says. And this is why that Solomon's wife said in the Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 1, or chapter 1 verse 2, they say, let him kiss us, let him kiss us with the kisses of his mouth for his love is better than wine. Now what are they saying? According to 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 3, it says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. In other words, Solomon was trying to keep a thousand women happy. I want to tell you, I don't even know how to keep one happy. And here he is trying to keep a thousand women happy. And he done it through gifts, perfumes, flowers, banquets, gold, silver, jewelry, expensive parties, expensive banquets and gifts, and all of those kinds of things. Women like those kinds of things, but let me tell you, this soon would no longer satisfy these women. What they longed for now was, I don't want your gold, I don't want your perfume, I want the kisses of your mouth. I want affection. And this is symbolic of us, the church, in the latter days becoming more mature. They, we don't, we, we, we're going to get to the place, or we should get to the place, that we just don't want the feelings, the blessings, the experience, and the gifts of the Spirit. Now, them are important. I want to prophesy. I want to speak in tongues. I want to be used in the gift of healing. And when I was younger, that's all I pursued because we all like power. We all like feeling. We all like experience. We like when our goosebumps come on the back of our head. But these women were saying, we've had enough of the gifts. We've had enough of all of that stuff. Not that they're not important. Not that they don't play a role in what our, our relationship is. But they said, we don't want that anymore. We want the kisses of your mouth. They wanted the word of God. Can I have an amen? Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the word. And out of his mouth floweth a two-edged two sword. It's the word of God. They want to go into that intimate place with him. They long for affection and relationship instead of a cheap date. They want something internal instead of external. When you're used to the Holy Spirit, it feels good. When you have a word of prophecy and you give it or you lay hands on somebody and that you have something happen and you speak in tongues or interpretation, it makes you feel good. As a matter of fact, 1 Corinthians tells you that it edifies the church, it edifies the believer. But the truth of the matter is, folks, that's all external. What we need here this morning and what God's wanting you to know is he's wanting to do an internal work in you by the word of the living God because it's able to get into the depth of you and Jesus is that word. It's a relational, intimate thing between us and Christ. They want to come to know him. They said, we know of you. You come and you flatter us and you charm us, but we want that oneness with you. We want that time of intimacy together. And the problem of it is he could not satisfy 1,000 women and he was having problems. And let me tell you, the problem with the church world of today is that we're hooked on feelings and we're not hooked on Jesus. Can I have an amen? Now, I'm not going to go there, but verse 1 of chapter 5 is intended to show us the bridal possession to its destination all the way to the palace. It has given us insight of the bridal night with the bridegroom after the rapture takes place and the celebrations and the festivals that are to, take, are to follow. This is also seen in Matthew chapter 22 in the parable of the bridegroom and the guests that come. You remember that? We, there's a parable in the New Testament that describes it as well. But this book is to be an amplification when the climax between the king and the bride is complete and there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. This means that this book serves. What does the book of King Song of Solomon do? It is a book that serves to enlarge upon and, de, enlarge upon and add detail to the story or the statement concerning the groom Christ and his relationship with his bride, the church. That's what this whole 
whole book's about. It's about a relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It is a Old Testament prophetic word through metaphor to show us how that Jesus wants to have a relationship with the modern 21st century church of today because God wants intimacy with his people. Can you give the Lord praise for that? He wants to have intimacy with you. I'm about to preach. I feel it in my spirit. Are you ready? Let's look now and examine the relationship between this woman and her beloved. Verse two, I asleep, but my heart awaketh. It's the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. Let's analyze this thing a little bit. Let's take it verse, I love doing this. Do you like this kind of stuff? I just love it. Here we see the beloved, the king, Jesus, and, and we, we, see, we see that he, he's not only representing Christ, but he's represented as the bridegroom here. And notice that he is in hot pursuit of his love, his sister, his dove. Here's Christ in hot pursuit of his sister, his love, his dove. This, of course, is speaking of the maiden in our text, but it's representing the church, the bride of Christ, you and I, the body of Christ. So we see Christ is in hot pursuit of his love, the church. You can say whatever you want. Where is God? I'll tell you where God's at. He's in hot pursuit of you. God is in hot pursuit of this congregation this morning. He has brought you here. He has set you up. And he's come here in hot pursuit to have a loving relationship with you here this morning. He's on a date here today. Can I have an amen? He's looking for you to show up in the spirit so that he can connect with you and have an intimate time with you here this morning. So we see Christ in hot pursuit of his love of the church. And the Bible says in Ephesians 5 and 25, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And he loved the church so much that he died and gave himself for it. That's how much Christ loves you. He loves you so much that he died and gave himself for you according to scripture. Here we see that the church is classified by the beloved himself as undefiled. That's what he says. He calls her my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. The state of the church and the reason for her separation is not the result of a sinful condition, but it's a result of one of apathy. It's not that she's committing uh, uh, adultery on him. It's that she is having a spirit of apathy. As a matter of fact, we see in Song of Solomon chapter 3, verse 1, it says, By night on my bed I sought him whom my soul loveth, but I found him not. Now here is the... Here is this maiden asleep in the middle of the night and all, and she admits, I, I'm looking for the one I love because I, I woke up and I rode over and he's missing. A lot of times in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I, I feel an empty presence and I'll reach over and Jenny's gone. I wonder, well, where's Jenny at? What is she doing? What, three o'clock in the morning, it's not like for her to get up, so I check on her. That's what has happened to this maiden. She's asleep in the middle of the night and all of a sudden she wakes up and she looks over and pats the bed and he's not to be found. It is here in the middle of the night that she wakes up, she reaches over, but he is not there, he is gone. He is gone, but she does not know when he left. Just like Samson, you remember Samson? When he woke up from his sleep and he went out like normal, he thought, I'm just gonna go out and whip these Philistines. You know, Delilah says, hey, the enemy's upon you. He gets up, he goes out, he shakes himself as the time before, but the Bible says, but he knew it not that the presence of God had departed from him. Why? Because of his slumber and his sleep. His absence was undetected by her due to her sleepful condition. She slept too long. Her rest turned into slumberness and now all of a sudden she has awakened to the reality that while she slept, her lover left. She has, she has slumbered. He as she slumbered, he withdrew. She did not stay sober. She did not stay alert. She did not stay watchful. What did Jesus tell us to do as the body of Christ? Be sober, be vigilant, because you're ever the devil like a worn lion walking about seeking. Be awake, he says. Be sober, be vigilant. He also tells you, I tell you unto all, watch and pray for the son of the man cometh. And he tells us to watch and to pray several times throughout the New Testament. But she's not been watching. She's not been praying. She's been sleeping. All of a sudden, she hears a noise at the door. It is the beloved knocking, though gone, yet he's not far from her. She might not know where he's at, but I want to tell you, he knows where she's at. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's times I have, I'm clueless of where God's at, but God knows exactly where I'm. Aren't you glad of that? The first appearance of her awareness that he is gone, he then comes knocking. He does not prolong 
his pursuit of her. It must have been a noise inside of the house he heard or a light came on and all of a sudden he said, oh, she knows I'm missing. So immediately, what does he do? He comes knocking on the door because the door is locked. She admits, I'm asleep, but my heart awaketh. Here we see that she is drowsy. Have you ever been drowsy? She's lethargic. lethargic. She's half asleep. She is not quite responsive. She's not quite alert. Her state of mind and her vision is blurry. She's unable to perceive clearly, and she's not sharp within her senses. Haven't you ever been asleep and awake at the same time, and you hear, but you really don't perceive what the person's actually saying? I do that every single morning of my life. My wife will come in. She's an early, early, early riser. She's so early riser, she'll go up and wake the roosters to crow. I mean, that's how early she gets up. And if, and if she does try to sleep in, her sister Deborah calls. Who in the right mind calls at five, somebody at five o'clock in the morning? Come on, give a man a break. Amen? But she'll come in there early in the morning, about every morning, because she leaves and I, 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 and gets the baby and does grocery shopping or whatever. She'll come in. Kent, and that's about all I hear. Have you ever watched the Charlie Brown cartoons, how the people talk? Well, that's all I hear. That's all I hear is Kent. And then when she leaves, I thought, I hope she didn't tell me something important because I have no idea what that woman said. Amen? That's exactly where this woman's at spiritually. I wonder how many of us is like that when God, the beloved, speaks and we're so drowsy. It's like a cartoon of Charlie Brown. It's nothing more than, we don't know what he's saying because we're drowsy. We're half asleep. We're not attentive. We're not watchful. We're not sober. We're not vigilant. We're, we're not aware. Sometimes he speaks and we're not even aware he's around. And this is the way this maiden was. Her perception is not completely keen. And due to her state of mind, she cannot respond appropriately. This is the reason for her separation from him. Her sleep and indifference has locked her away from her beloved. The maiden is asleep, but deep inside of her is a yearning for a rendezvous with this king. Oh, she loves him. She wants to have a rendezvous. She wants to have a right relationship. You know how many people are tormented. They want a right relationship with God, but they don't have the energy to pursue it. They want to be right with God, but they just somehow don't make the right choices and the right decisions to ever make it come to pass. Come on, somebody help me preach. How often do we find ourselves like the disciples in the garden with Jesus? Our body is resting, but our spirit is longing for a connection with God, and we desire to obey his commandments because Peter, James, and John followed Jesus into the garden at his command. They wanted to be with him. They wanted a relationship with him. Jesus asked him, all I ask you to do is sit here and watch and pray with me for one hour. And he goes a stone throw away to pray, and when he comes back, he finds him, well, what? Asleep. Now, they're with him. They want to be with him. They got a desire to be with him, but they're not watchful and they're not praying and they fall asleep. And Jesus says to them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but your flesh is weak. Now, listen to me. There's a lot of people that have the want to, but they never have the up to. They never get around to doing it. They want to, and every morning they wake up, well, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow never comes. It's always the want to. Their hearts are pure and their attitude is good, but the problem of it is they never get around consciously to understand that there's a part that they have to play. It's called obedience. Amen? Many have desire to respond, but they're unable to follow through to find the intimacy with the beloved. This maiden wants to be close with him. Suddenly she hears the voice of the one she, she loves saying, open the door, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled. I wish I could preach on those terms, dove. And, and, and oh man, there's so much there, but I don't have time. She hears the beloved calling out to her, but due to her apathy and slumberness, she can't respond. Her body is like lead. Have you ever felt like lead? But her heart, her spirit is very much awakened to the need to open up to him. She's aware of what she needs to do, but she lacks the stamina to do it. She got the knowledge of what she needs to do. She just don't ever get around to doing it. Here is the manifestation of God's love and grace, though. I want to show you God's love. Though she's indifferent toward him, she makes no physical effort on her part to pursue him, yet he pursues her. Amen? Have you ever been a young boy or a young woman chasing a boy or chasing a girl, only, you know, to find rejection after rejection, but you like them so much you just keep pursuing them? Am I the only one that done that? I pursued 500 girls at high school. I thought if, you know, if you chase enough of them, surely you're going to catch one. Amen? But haven't you ever had just a certain love for a certain girl or certain love for a certain boy and you pursued and pursued and how heartbroken you were when they resisted you but it didn't stop you? 
and you just kept doing, trying to do the right things. I remember the first time that I pursued Jenny. Her car comes flying through town. You know what I do? I get the courage. I get in my truck. I run her down. I walk up, and I think, I'm going to put on a little act here. And I walk up to the door, and I knock on the window, and the window comes down. I say, hey, babe, I'm Fonz. Me and you, Friday night, 7 o'clock, be there. And she looked up at me, and it was her sister, Penny. <laughs> oh, I got the wrong woman here. Whoa. <laughs> Lord, help us. That would have been a nightmare. I can say that Penny's not here. Oh, I hope she's not watching by internet today. <laughs> but here's the manifestation of God's grace and love. Rejected. The one he loves, indifferent toward him, but he's still standing there. I love you. My sweet love. My sweet love. Don't ever say my sweet dumpling. That don't work. I heard yesterday that, you know, the, the, the woman that's getting a little bit of heavy or pudgier lives longer than the husband that talks about it. <laughs> Amen. Don't ever call your wife dumpling. Now, I, I, I done that one time and I got corrected. It was a compliment. I love chicken and dumplings. There's nothing better on the face of chicken and dumplings. And she's my little dumpling. Well, that didn't go over so good. Amen. And though she's tucked away out of sight of him, he knows where she's at. He pursues her. He knocks on the door of her dwelling and calls out her name, speaking love things to her. And all too often, I think that even though that we're very much awake in the flesh, you know, I'm going to think a lot of times we're lethargic and asleep in the spirit. And I think too often Jesus comes by to steal a few moments of our time, but we're just too busy to respond. Come on, somebody help me preach. We're indifferent spiritually. We feel the tug of the Holy Spirit but we override the promptings, putting them on hold, putting them off, taking it for granted. Oh, they'll come back at a more convenient time when it's convenient for me. I want to tell you, every time that God wants to seem to visit with me, it's at the most inconvenient times. Three o'clock in the morning is not a good time to get up and have a relationship. Has you ever had God wake you up in the middle of the night? And you say, well, why does he do that? Because that's the only time he can get your attention a lot of times. Amen? Because we're too busy throughout the day for him to speak to us. And he comes by to talk with us, to visit us, to encourage us. To, he's out to do good to us. Amen. He's not out to condemn us. He's here to love on us. He stands at the door of our dwelling. He stands at the door of our heart, awaiting a response. But a lot of times from his church, there's no response given. And in order for her to have the rendezvous that she actually desires of him, she must open the door of her heart to encountering. I want to just stop and say, folks, God's not just going to come down and force his love upon you. You've got to open the door of your heart. You've got to listen to him when the tugs are there. When the voice of your beloved is calling, you've got to respond. You've got to open up the door of your heart to him. She has to make an intentional decision to respond because he will not force himself upon anybody. The word Holy Ghost is also a word called Holy Guest. He will not come into a place he's unwelcome. He will not force himself upon you. And a lot of people just sit around here waiting for God to initiate a response. And then when he does tug, we don't obey. But he wants, for some reason, we want God to just pick us up and slam us and make us have an encounter with him. That's not going to happen. God moves in congregations that's sensitive to him. That's yielded to him. We want a revival. I'll be talking in the, in the days to come about a revival that's taking place in one of our churches. And I think it's in North Carolina. I have a pastor that I know. He opened up a prayer revival. And over 2,000 people showed up on a Monday night to pray. And they've been having services out of this world with miracles and signs. And, and it's blowing North Carolina apart. Why? Because there's a sensitivity of a people wanting to have the heart to connect with their beloved. If we want revival, there's a cost that has to come. There's an intimate time that you and I have to have. Look at Song of Solomon 5 and 3. I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? Now, this is where some of you are not going to understand. Here we see that there can be an inconvenience to intimacy. Now, the more mature that you get, the more the challenge there is to intimacy. Oh, hang on here. When you're young, intimacy's not a chore. When you get a little older, I want to tell you, intimacy takes on a different form. And there is sometimes an inconvenience to intimacy. And intimacy changes the older that you get. Some of you young people are sitting there with a the forehead and say, what's wrong with that man? 
some of your old people. Amen? This is true not only in the physical folks, but it's the same way it is in the spiritual. In order for a person to go from one level to the next, his intimacy has to change. Hold on. Maturity demands, and listen to the word maturity, because I want to tell you, young love feels great, but it is not a deep love. Young intimacy is wonderful, pleasurable, exciting, and God created it for our enjoyment, but I want to tell you, that is not maturity. When you were out on your date and you were first, you know, a lot of problems some married couples make, they want the same kind of feeling they had when they went on their first date in a, in a movie theater. That's never coming back. That is not really a deep love. It's an emotional love. It's a feeling love. I want to tell you, but when you begin to make right decisions and you begin to choose to love and all of a sudden love becomes a chore and you make the efforts to meet those demands of intimacy, that intimacy takes on a new level. It's more deeper. It's more mature. And all of a sudden your love becomes more steadfast than it's ever been in your life. I love my wife more now than I've ever loved her in my whole life. Amen? Maturity demands a depth of intimacy for one to go from one spirit realm to another. With each new dimension or pursuit, it acquires a measurable change in our intimacy with Christ. Can I have an amen? The intimacy you had when you first got saved was wonderful, but I want to tell you, it's got to change in order for you to get to maturity, just like within a marriage. Amen? There is a price that has to be paid. Listen. Here's what she says. I'm going to paraphrase what she says in today's language. Hey, the bed is cozy. The body is weary. The covers are warm. The room is cold. It's going to take me effort to get up and open the door for me to have intimacy with him. Come on. It'll be a lot of trouble to put on my robe. It's going to be a lot of trouble for me to have to go and open this door for him in the middle of the night to let him in. You know, on the floor of her dwelling was probably packed earth. They didn't have concrete. They didn't have wood floors. So she'll have to retrieve a vessel of water, and she's going to have to wash her feet again before she gets in bed. And all of a sudden, here she is, here in the beloved, and a decision has to be made. Is this worth it, or is it too much work, or is it too much trouble? Intimacy's work. Prayer, devotion, worship, study, it's, it's hard work, but that's what we call Intimacy. It's discipline, spiritual disciplines. Hard work. While she was in the valley of decision, he's still waiting at the door. He's not left. Here he is doing everything he can to convince her. It'll be worth it if you open the door. Oh, if you'll just trust me, I'll make it worth your time. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. Babe, if you'll just put forth the effort, you're going to have the rendezvous of your life. If you think the things I've done in the past has been good, all of the perfumes, honey, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm desperate out here. I'm knocking on the door of your dwelling. I really want to have a rendezvous with you. You know, that's exactly what God does to his church all the time. If you'll just take the effort, if you'll put forth the effort, if you'll draw nigh to me, hey, I'll give you the rendezvous of your life. If you will just get out of that warm bed, out of that coziness, out of that comfortableness, and come, and have a little intimate time with me. I'll show myself strong on your behalf. She hears his hands upon the latch as he tries to put his finger in the keyhole just to get an arousement out of her. Listen to what she says in verse four. My beloved put his hand by the hole of the door and when he did, my bowels were moved for him. Oh, he, he's, he's charming her. He's enticing her. She feels him outside that door. It's more than a knowledge. Now she's beginning, hey, there's something working. Haven't you ever been there in the Holy Spirit just working on the inside and you're, and you're wanting to respond, but you don't? Amen? You remember the night that God convicted you of your sin and you responded? Wasn't that wonderful? Well, it's the same thing in our rendezvous. He comes and we feel that tug and we feel that warmth, but we're not wanting to obey it. We got too much to do. Like this today, let me get, before I even start to close. What do you got planned for this afternoon? What happens if he comes and wants to interrupt your plans and starts promoting his love towards you and say, hey, I want to spend Sunday today with you? What are you going to do? Is the things you've got to do out here more important than your rendezvous with Christ? Hello? It's getting quiet in here. What is it that we have already pre-planned that cannot be canceled because it's too important to cancel in light 
of God's pursuit of us, his church. And I want to tell you, revival will never happen until we're willing to give up some things. And most of the time, when God does pursue you in a hot level, it's at the moment you've got your mind set on something else. And he wants you to give that up for him. He wants to see how much you're willing to sacrifice. He's sacrificing. How much are you willing to sacrifice for a rendezvous with him? He's the king. Here she is now, wrestling, because she sees, gets a glimpse of his hand in the hole of the door, and her bowels are moved from him. And she's wrestling within her inner self. She wants to respond. Man, she's just miserable. She's just in that twitch, that middle ground. I want to do it, but yet... I don't want to do it. I don't know. I don't, have you, how many's been there? Has anybody been here? She wants to do it, but she's not made the move to do it at this point. He hopes that his stirring outside will make her heart yearn for him. And listen to what verse 9 says in Song of Solomon chapter 2. Behold, he standeth behind the wall. He looketh forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. He's peeking as you peeping, Tom. Look at me. Get a glimpse of me. If you just can see me and my earnestness and my love, you'll surely open the door. Surely I'm your beloved. You say you love me. You say you want me. Well, if you do, open the door. I'll come in. That's what he's saying. He's trying everything he can to and giving her an invitation to open the door. He will not push the door down. He will not barge in on her. Why? He respects her. He empowers her own free will to make her own decisions. He is not going to force her. He stands by the window hoping she'll get a glimpse of me. She'll be aroused by my presence. She must realize that he too has paid a price to be with her as well. You know how we know that? All the while he's waiting at the door for her response, he's becoming soaking wet by the dew of the night. Her, his pursuit has been one of patience, one of love, one of affection. He has stood by the door all night long, calling out her name and saying sweet love things to her. I said something to Jenny when we were on our first date, and she remembers it to this day. I don't know why I said it, and I don't even know what it means, and we laugh about it. But she knows it's sweet things. She's probably sung some love songs to her. Amen? He's probably outside of the door singing, Love me tender, love me true, never let me go. That's probably what he was doing. Amen? He's doing everything. Hey, baby, I'm singing. I'm calling you my love. I'm calling you my dove. I'm saying nice things to you. Would you please just open the door? I'm getting soaking wet out here. He stood by the door all night long, calling out her name and saying sweet things to her. And listen, he knocks and says, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. He was wet, he was cold, he's lonely, he's, and he's done it all just for her. While she's cozy, while she's warm, he's suffering. And has not Christ suffered for us so that we could have a relationship with him? Amen. Then all of a sudden we read Song of Solomon 5, 5, and 6. I rose up to my beloved. Oh, she's finally responded. Can somebody say hallelujah? The church finally awaits. And my hands are dropped with myrrh and my fingers with a sweet smelling myrrh upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved. Oh, how exciting it is. But my beloved has withdrawn himself and he has gone and my soul failed when he spank and I saw him, but I could not find him. I called out his name, but he didn't answer me. Oh, how sad. Here we see that by the time she decides to respond and open the door, he's gone. Though she loves him, and her heart leaped when she heard his voice, yet her procrastination pushed him away. He stood outside patiently all night long, and she waited till the early morning to begin to respond. But the problem is she has waited too long. Can I tell you something, church, that's of most importance there are windows and moments of opportunity that God gives us to move into a deeper level with him that if missed, they never return. They go away. There are what they call in the Bible, Keros moments, God moments, divine invitations. If not taken, they'll be lost. Amen? And we cannot take God for granted, and God is not to be presumed upon. The individual who chooses to deny him entry or expect that 
that he's going to camp outside of our dwelling until we finally give him permission to enter in or give him an invitation to enter in. I want to tell you, they have forgotten that he is the king. He does not need us. We need him. We can never assume that he will stand at the door of our heart and the door of our dwelling forever and enter in only when we give him the permission. It's almost like, God, you stand there and when I want you, I'll open the door. You'd be like a little beggar out there and every once in a while when I need something real drastic, I'll open the door and let you in for a little while and then when I get enough of you, I'll let you go and shut the door and you just keep standing out there until I need you again. And that's exactly how the church has treated Jesus Christ. When the beloved knocks the door, it's time to drop all agendas and open the door for an encounter and a rendezvous with our Lord. Nothing else matters. Nothing is more important than having the king in the house. Can I tell you, we can do all this stuff that we do here mechanically in a religious way, but I want to tell you, we're wasting our time if the king ain't in the house. There's nothing more important than for the house to be filled with the sweet aroma of the beloved's presence. Amen. Oh, I pray here today. You know what I pray? That God would fill this house like he did on the day of Pentecost. That the sweet aroma of the beloved's presence would come down and start loving and touching and squeezing and having intimate kisses with his bride, the church. If you want him right now, would you just lift your hand and say, oh, Lord, come, come, come into my life. I open the door right now in the name of Jesus. Here's the maiden. She finds herself estranged from her beloved, not because of sin, but because of neglect. She's not went out on him, but she's ignored him and not given him entry into her life. How many of us really honestly in the flesh is going to continually keep a relationship with someone where there's no intimacy? Probably not very long. Some people walk away, well, he didn't even talk to me. Or she didn't even talk to him. We're ready to throw him away. And yet this patient Christ is standing there with no loving expressions or intimacy from the church day after day. My love, my dove, my undefiled, please open the door. Oh, I'm cold, I'm weary. I've been out here all night long in the dew of the night and my locks of my hair are filled with wet with water. Please open the door, baby. Oh, would you just respond to uh, doing everything you can? And that's what God's doing to the church right here, right now in this time in our lives. His absence is due to her lack of motivation and facilitating his presence. Folks, and I'm going to be preaching a message on facilitating because God's put that into my heart. I don't know when, but I want to tell you, the church has got to learn how to facilitate and make room for the presence of God. She did not make room for him because she was full of herself. She was cozy. She was warm. She was relaxed. She was comfortable. She liked where she was at, and I don't know if she's worth it or not. Let me tell you, comfortableness has killed more churches and more Christians than anything else that I know. And thank God, sometimes God comes around and makes you uncomfortable because uncomfortableness is a divine opportunity to experience God like you never have. Amen? The maiden wanted to long, wanted and waited too long, and he's moved on. She now finds herself alone, empty and void. She finally opens the door, but it's too late. He's gone. And listen to Isaiah 55 and 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he's near. Amen. And due to him being gone, she panics. She dresses herself and leaves, she leaves the house looking for him. Why is it, folks, that she could not dress herself while he was knocking? Why do we have to wait till the house burns down? Or why do we have to wait till desperate measures come before we seek him? Why is that? Why do we always wait till the very last minute? Randy West always says in marital counseling, why did you wait till the house burns down before you got help? All we got is a bunch of ashes here. It would have been a lot better when it first caught on fire. And here we are, here at the church, standing here. Disaster's coming. God's knocking, wanting to prevent it, but we wait till the disaster happens before we'll open the door of our heart and really have a rendezvous with him. God help us. Some got things God wants to have preventative. He wants to stop things from happening before they ever happen. Look at the Song of Solomon 5 and 7. The watchman that went about the city found me. Oh, how about the ball? They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away my veil. Let's paraphrase it. This is very touching to me. 
So I've asked God, have I done this, God, and not know it? The first place she seeks, she's out in the streets. She's looking for assistance. And the watchman find her. Listen, as we see that there's a twofold dilemma here. Look, look at Solomon 3, 2 and 3. I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and the broadways and I will seek him whom my soul loveth. I sought him but I found him not. And the watchman that goeth about the city found me to whom I said, have you saw him, my, the one that my soul loves? Here she's out wandering in the streets and the alleys and calling out his name and he's not answering and she's desperate. She's in a bad way. And all of a sudden she comes across the watchman of the city. And the watchman of the city we see now has, is caused another dilemma. The first dilemma we have is the house is without God's presence. But the worst, the second dilemma is we have watchmen who no longer knows where he's at. We have a misplaced king. Amen. I wonder how many churches have a misplaced king. I wonder how many individuals have a misplaced king upon the throne of their heart. The watchman could not tell her where to find him. It was the watchman's job. They were the shepherds of the city. It's a sad day when you have shepherds who no longer know the way to the presence of God. It's a sad day when we have empty houses who no longer can house the presence of God. But it's even a Saturday when we have watchmen that do not know where he's at either. Here you see a group of shepherds, leaders, pastors, and they themselves has lost their connectedness with God. They've not kept up with his movements. They are not aware of his divine presence. They themselves have lost touch with him. I wonder how many leaders has lost touch to the presence of God. Their connectedness with God. How can the church of the people of God live on the cutting edge and the awareness of, of what God is up to if the shepherds don't do it? Amen? And notice what also happens to this maiden when she comes in contact with these shepherds. Verse 7, the watchman that went about the city found me. They smote me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took away the veil from me. Why did they do that? What the, I think they done it un, unintentionally, unconsciously. Men of God that doesn't have an abiding presence of the beloved in their lives, they find themselves many times challenged by passionate people in pursuit of God. Are you listening to me? Unknowingly and unconsciously many times, they can be cruel to spiritual hungry people. And this is what happens when laity begins to outgrow leadership. They begin unconsciously, beat them up emotionally, and they wound them with their words. Come on. They demand that they settle down into some mediocre state and stop their passionate pursuit of a deeper relationship with God. They begin to become intimidated, these shepherds, and they feel like that, and they feel like that, they, that they're being threatened by these people's passion. Then they develop insecurities, which causes them to temper or to try to control the passion of other people. They say, settle down, behave yourself. Just sit there in them pews and, and I'll tell you what to do. This causes them to become dictators instead of leaders. The truth is, it's much easier to pastor and to lead lukewarm people than it is to manage actually passionate seekers. If I have a whole church full of lukewarm people, it ain't hard to pastor them. I got a bunch of people reading every book and listening to every tape and all of a sudden, I don't remember, they're passionate and they're wanting to do this and they're wanting to do that. and they're, They'll drive you plumb crazy. Hello? You say, what are you saying? I'm saying, give me a house full of passionate seekers. I don't want a lukewarm church. I refuse to have a lukewarm church. I want a hot, dripping church that every time somebody comes in, they think, what in the world's happening around here? What in the world's gonna happen next? Amen? I want the presence of God to be so strong it peels the paint off the walls. Amen? Have I got anybody here with me? I want something hopping and I want energy. I want life. I want substance. I want a move of God that changes lives. I don't want a mediocre move. I want the presence of God. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. This pastor's starving. For revival in this church. This challenge, the church leaders and pastors and shepherds actually wounded her, but they done something else. They unveiled her. The unveiling was more than wounding. 
It was making her and giving her an unfavorable identity. Now hang on here. The shepherds knew that she would not allow them to dampen the passion because they know all about passionate people, how crazy they can be. And they knew that she's going to continually seek after this master. So what, they do, what do they do? They have to try to cover up to those in the city of why that they could not help her and find where that. Why didn't they just admit, we don't know where he's at. We've lost touch with him ourselves. Let, let, let's just go seek together. Why didn't they say that? They try to paint a picture of her as being a fanatic and weird and obsessive and overzealous and unruly. And this was for the sole purpose to cover up their own lack of presence. As a leader, they tried to make themselves look more spiritual than that passionate seeker was. To unveil her and to leave a woman with an open face in public in that, in that, in that, uh, in that uh, custom or in that, in that culture was making her look like a prostitute. Instead of being gentle and caring and loving and giving her direction, they imposed upon her an identity to try to dampen her passion and to damage her witness. God, I do not want to be a pastor like that. If you are a passionate person, I'll be the first one to be your greatest cheerleader and do everything I possibly can to help you to be able to flow in that passion for the glory of God. Can I have an amen? And even though they wounded her, disgraced her, and gave her an unfavorable identity, yet she could not stop seeking him. She's tasted that life of intimacy, and she wants it again. She's hungry for an embrace, for an infection, for his love. She's hungry. She's just waiting for his gentle touch one more time. What does Matthew 5 and 6 say? Blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the ones that's going to be filled. She's so hungry. She's been intimate with her beloved before and she cannot live without him. She must find him. One of the things that is so disheartening to a pastor is to see young people age seven, eight, nine go to youth camps and they're wallowing the floor, speaking in tongues, crying, weeping, having experiences with God. They get up to the teenage years and they are hungry like this group is over here and they're, they're, they're falling out in the spirit. They're lifting their hands. They're crying. They're around altars. And all of a sudden, college age comes, and they come and go, and they come and go. And by the time they get older, you never see another passionate movement on their lives ever again. Why? Why is it that some of us older people don't think that we need a move of God in our lives and have an intimate time with him? I've got loved ones that I've seen when they were small, weeping, crying, feeling like they had a call on their lives, had passion, zeal to do something for the Lord, and now they're just existing. They're not committing spiritual adultery. They're not going out and sinning and partying and drinking and drugging it and, and those kinds of things, but yet neither are they passionately hungry for God. And let me tell you, Neglect will drive God away just as fast as adultery will. Help me, Lord. How hungry are you here today? How many really want a revival in this church that's going to turn this place upside down? How much do you miss the moments of intimacy with your lover? Do you remember when you was touched by the Lord? How many want more of that? I'd like to see some 50s, 40, 30-year-old men down on their knees weeping and crying and rolling and tumbling and God doing an intimate work in their lives. Listen to her cry and plea in Song of Solomon 5 and 8. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I'm sick of love. Then listen to a response of the world in verse 9. Why is thy beloved more than another beloved? O thou fairest among women, why is thy beloved more than another beloved? That, 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 that you do give us this charge. They were saying, what makes that man so special? That's what they were saying. They asked, what, does, what has caused you to get so caught up in this guy? Why is he so unique? Why don't you just go out and find another lover? What is it about him that you're so wrapped up in? You're pretty. You've got what it takes to get another because you're the fairest among women. That's what they said. He's not irreplaceable. Is any one worth getting that worked up about? Why do you consider him better than any other ones? Why does he have to be the one? Why can't you find somebody else? 
We've never met a man that, that is irreplaceable. Man, there's all kinds of fish in the sea. Go find you another. Get over him. Then listen to her response in the next 10 verses as I just kind of paraphrase what she says. She says, oh, no, he's chief. He's the top of the heap. He's among the 10,000. His head is like gold. His eyes are like the innocence of doves. His breath is like spices. His smell is like herbs. His lips are as tender as lilies. His hands are like rods of gold set on burl. His body is inlaid with sapphires. His legs are like marble set on bases of gold. His mouth is sweet. He's altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. How can I not find him? There's none like him. When you have had the best, you cannot and will not be satisfied with any other. I have to find my beloved. He is irreplaceable. In her picture of him, we see sweet smells, bright glitter, stately stone, precious jewels, and, and uh, fragrant wood. All of them are mentioned. These descriptions describe items which were not native to Israel. They represent a collection from all around the world. And the average home in Israel would not even have been able to have, afford a fraction of the variety of the things, the items that is described here. They are representative of an international wealth. You know what she was saying? She is saying the king is a rare collection of divine beauty. She sees the king as a treasure that is greater than all the wealth of the world put together. Isn't that what Matthew said? Why shall it profit you if you gain the whole world? But you don't have him. How can anyone compare to him, she says. How can anyone even think of another when you've tasted and had the best? He's incomparable, unique, irreplaceable. He's priceless. He's beyond words. He is irresistible. He's exceptional. He's extraordinary. He's superb. He's amazing. He is awesome. He's wonderful. He's grand. He's glorious. He's first class. He's first rate. He's rare. He's the exalted one. He's God. How can I have anyone but him? The value she places upon him was seen in the extravagant, passionate way that she sought him. And notice that she fought struggles in finding him. Though she endured hardship, though she faced discouragement, it was work, it was effort. Notice this, Song of Solomon 3, 4. It was but a little that I passed from them. Have you ever... In your pursuit, think, man, this has been a long journey. This has been a long season. Then all of a sudden, when you finally get there, oh, man, that happened just like that. This is what she's saying. She's saying, after I found him, it just like it was a little past the time, all that effort was worth it. All of that work that I endured, it was worth it. He said, it was but a little time that I passed from them, but I found him whom my soul loveth. I held him. I would not let him go until I had been brought into the, my mother's house, into the chamber that I was conceived in. Now, I'll notice this. She found him, and you know what Jeremiah 29, 13 says? And you will seek me, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The Bible says in James chapter 4, draw out of God, then God begins to draw out of you. When she did find him, she would not let him go. She held him intimately. Like Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. She finds him and she hangs on to him and said, I'm not letting you go until we get into the bedchambers and me and you have intimacy. I'm not leaving until you and I become one with each other. And she held on and she held on and she went into the house. She went into the very bedchambers and there they, she conceived with him and became one with him and had intimacy with her beloved. She would not be denied of the blessing. She wrestled and she waited and she finally got there. Everything God created is connected to a source. Now I'm going to close with this. You know what? He, in the heavens, God placed the sun and the stars, didn't he not? When a star falls out, what is it? It burns out and it no longer exists. On earth, he planted herbs and he planted trees and flowers. You pick some of those up and they disconnected from the earth. You know what happens? They're disconnected from their source. They wither. They die. And the same it is with us. When God made us, he created, uh, created us out of himself. Did you know when he made us, he made us in, in his image, in his likeness, and he breathed the breath of life into us. And as long as we stay connected with God, we live, we move, and we have our being. But the moment that we become disconnected with God through neglect and through apathy and indifference and slumberness and sleep, we wither and we die. Unless we're connected to the vine, we die. Would you stand with me, please?
It's Sunday morning. How hungry are you here today? I'll never forget, I was talking to my daughter-in-law, Sophie, some time ago, and I don't know if she even remembers saying this, but man, it hit me like a ton of bricks. We were talking about a scenario, about a situation that was happening in some people's lives, and we were praying over that situation, and I was, and I'm sure she was as well, and I said, I just wonder why they can't see, and she stopped me, she says, it's because they're not hungry, and I thought, really, that's the truth? The reason a lot of us are in the place that we're in because we're not hungry. We're comfortable. We're cozy. And until life gets so miserable, we won't open the door. And then when we do open the door, he won't be there and we have to go try to find him. Amen. And right now God's saying to me to ask you this morning, do you hear him? How hungry are you? Do you want to run to a run of Rendezvous with the, a rendezvous with the king this morning. God's here to love on us today. God's here to love on this congregation. I look out, and while I've been preaching, tears are going down the people's face. You know why? Because they're so desperate for intimacy with God. They want to do right. They're not out here stealing, lying, cheating, but yet they're void. They're empty. They're intimacy. They're in that wrestling stage. Is it going to be worth it? And the beloved said, oh, baby, open the door. I'll come in. It'll be worth it. Does that mean that day if you come to the altar and begin to set in motion that he's immediately going to bless your socks off? I don't know exactly when the conception between you and him will happen but you've got to make a move and you've got to go through the disciplines and you've got to get out of the uncoziness and the place of your comfortableness and say, I'm hungry enough to seek him today. None of us are seeing the things in the spirit that God wants to manifest in this place. And the only way they're going to be manifested is when the body takes on ownership and says, I've got to become intimate with Christ. I promise you, as long as I'm here as your shepherd, I will try to have a connectedness with God. I will not beat you up. I will not unveil you because you become passionate. I will not call you a weirdo, an extreme. Oh, yes, we may have to instruct, guide, harness a little, but I'll never stifle your passion. I may have to give it some direction. I may have to try to help you in that as much as I can and as much as I know how. But I will never stifle, nor will I ever treat you harshly because you got a passion for God. I will never laugh at you if you get overzealous. Give me a whole church of overzealousness. I'd rather have a person with passion than have a person of apathy that's just not interested. I'm happy where I'm at. I'm happy with my family. I'm happy with my career. God, leave me alone when I need you. And when my kid gets sick, my kid gets on drugs, and when we really don't have any kinds of uh, uh, problems right now, I'm not warning you. But when that happens, I'll come and I'll ask for you. I'll come and I'll really get serious with you. It's too late. Give me some people that's ready to have love making with their king. Is it all right to say that? Can I invite you to this altar this morning for this body to seek the Lord just for a little while? How hungry are you? Do I have anybody that's hungry? I'm hungry. Oh, God's sure going to pour it on some people here today. Already I see presence on her. Already. Just by her walking down here, God's already. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful what you felt? You ain't felt that in a while, sis. It's already there. It's already leading you into more depth. Your intimacy is changing. Would you come this morning? Come on, church. Respond to the Lord here today. Just start loving him. I, I, I'm not going to go around and try to lay hands on you and try to have some kind of a explosion. This is a love-making time. This is an intimate time between you and your king. Just say, Lord, I love you. How oh. he loves us. Oh.
Father, right now in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray over this congregation today. I pray, Lord, as they seek you right here this morning, that, Father, that their hearts, that yearn for you, to want to have intimacy with you, to have, have, a, have a rendezvous with you, Lord, that you would begin to prepare their hearts. That you begin to move them into that, that new realm of intimacy, God. That new mature way, God, to where things that happen in their lives will begin to be more richer, more pure, more, more, more holier than they have ever had in their whole life experience and encounter with you. I pray your blessings upon them right now. Lord, let this body seek you. Let this body seek you, Lord, wherever they're at, whatever they're doing. Let this body take some time to seek you this morning. Nothing's more important than the king in the house. Nothing's more important than to know you. Oh, God, let all the other agendas fall away for just a moment of time here today. Just, just for a while that we might seek you. Oh, that we might know you. That we might love you, Father. Oh, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus.